Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in this space and help lead the charge toward a more decentralized web. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Matthew Gold, co-founder and CEO at Unstoppable Domains, and our guest, Tim Bako. He's the chair of All Core Devs at the Ethereum Foundation. We're really excited to talk to him more about Ethereum and the EIPs. He is really deep in the weeds in that, so we're going to do a deep dive into the EIPs Ethereum improvement proposals and learn more about some of those. So welcome, Tim. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Great. So to start off, I'm just curious to hear about your crypto journey. How did you end up getting into blockchain? Because I know you came from more of a VC and startup, you know, entrepreneurial journey. So at what point did you get exposed to blockchain and you got interested and now you went down the rabbit hole and now you're kind of deep in the weeds? Yeah, I first heard about blockchain from a, a friend of mine who was always into these kind of weird schemes. You know, Bitcoin was one of them, but like other things he was into was, uh, I think this was like 2013, 2014, he was like buying money, uh, the currency from, I believe, like Iraq because the US was invading and the currency was going down and you could only buy it physically. So he was buying, you know, like actual physical uh, Iraqi dinars on eBay and thinking it would go up. Uh, that never worked out, but then another one, and it seemed very complicated to do, but then another one of his like weird schemes was Bitcoin at the time, um, and he got me interested in that. I got you know, interested in it in 2013, 2014. There wasn't a ton outside of Bitcoin in, the, in, the, in crypto, um, so it just stayed kind of a hobby. And then you know, I think around like 2016, 2017, uh, Ethereum started becoming a bit more a bit more known. And I first kind of really dug into the rabbit hole when the DAO happened, not the hack, but the project. Uh, so when the project got announced, uh, you know, that seemed really interesting. It seemed like like Ethereum went from being this kind of weird thing to something that had tractions and had, you know, some big projects building on it. So I got interested then and, and it was kind of an very exciting moment to dive down the rabbit hole where, you know, then the DAO obviously got hacked and that caused a ton of issues and uh, led to, to, to the, the fork. You know, it kind of died down a little bit after that for a year or two and it stayed a side interest of mine. And in like late 2016, early 2017, we started having another round of these projects fundraising on Ethereum. So kind of the first ICOs. And then very quickly in 2017, the amount of ICOs just like overwhelmed the platform. So to me, that showed like there was enough demand for Ethereum that they probably wouldn't completely go away. Like people will find things to build on that. Um, And it also showed how kind of brittle the protocol was at that point, where I remember, I think it was the status ICO, like basically froze the chain for a few days because of processing the transactions. And that made me want to to work on it full time and and at the protocol level to try to find ways where we we can improve that. Late 2017 or 2018, I forget, I joined Consensus. Uh, to work on their protocol team there and uh, did that for two and a half years. So I was working on uh, their Ethereum client called Hyperledger Basu, uh, which got me you know, pretty involved with the protocol work. After doing that for two, two and a half years, 
an opportunity came up when Hudson Jameson, who was the previous chair of Alcor Devs, uh, which is the, the kind of big meeting where all the, the Ethereum client developers go every two weeks. After doing it for five years, Hudson wanted to step aside, do something new. I was kind of at the right spot there and, and, and decided it would be really valuable to take it over. It shows how much opportunity there is in the crypto space. The space is just growing so fast that if you're in the right place in the right time and you show interest and you get involved, uh, you'd be surprised you know, what opportunities open up. You actually mentioned a couple things there that I want to touch on for the people listening uh, back in 2017. And I think 2017 was the last really big investment cycle for crypto. That's when a lot of new people got into the space and a lot of new money came on. And this is typical, right? These investment cycles, they happen in all these new markets. Uh, and then you have a lot of new things that happen. And you mentioned a couple there that I thought were pretty interesting. So one of them is the original DAO. And that stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization, I believe. And I think that the one you're talking about, it was done by the same guys who did Slocket. I, I don't remember the whole history there. You're coming from a VC side. That actually makes a lot of sense. So the DAO was a way for people to coordinate different projects that they wanted to fund, if I remember correctly. Can you uh, maybe talk a little bit about the, the original DAO? Because I think DAOs are everywhere now. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, so yeah, my background was just general in tech. So I, I was a PM at an AI startup before that. And, and, and then I had my own startup. So I, yeah, just kind of, you know, non-blockchain technology. And then what the DAO was, it was basically this decentralized VC fund where people could like, buy tokens in it and then your tokens where you know the share a share that you could use to vote on an investment and people would or projects would come and, and basically request an investment from the DAO, which is like not too dissimilar to, to what Moloch DAO does now, uh, although they don't take an investment, it's more grants, but it's kind of a, a similar concept. And then Slocket, the project you mentioned, they were doing kind of a, a, a decentralized lock where like if you had a lock, you could pay uh, with Ether to, to lock or unlock it. And so they were one of the original projects that wanted to be funded by this, this VC fund. I think it's just super interesting. So the original DAO, which is referred to as just, it's just called, I, I don't remember if they have a special name for it, but it's just the DAO, eventually became an SEC case. And they actually used that to kind of establish some of the rules around what you should or should not be doing, at least here in the US. Um, and that's just how early that was. Like it was way, and what people were trying to do is they were trying to use these blockchains to coordinate uh, working together on the internet. And they just wanted to say like, hey, we want to like, we want to be able to get together and have several of these projects get funding, right? So that they can build all these cool new tech on the blockchain. And it was the first attempt and it was just all smart contracts. So it was definitely brand new <laughs> for the space. And then at the same time, then you had the uh, status ICO, which, which is just another uh, ICO. And status is now, I think, one of the largest wallets in Ethereum. They're a pretty big Ethereum-based company. And so many people wanted to participate that the whole blockchain just kind of collapsed, I think, uh, because of the way that the ICO was designed. Yeah, that was definitely the growing pains back in 2017. So uh, you got on the right, right place and then moved on to uh, core devs. So other than just diving in and then becoming, uh, you know, one of the one of the people running the Ethereum Foundation, how would you advise others to, to learn about blockchain like today? If they're, they're coming out and they wanted to learn more, where would you tell them to go and get their reading uh, so that they could become more informed? I guess the biggest difference today is how big, you know, not only Ethereum, but blockchain has grown. Like, I mean, I struggle to keep up with everything just happening on Ethereum and I pay, you know, only superficial attention to, to projects outside of that. And, and there's more, you know, 10, if not a hundred times more projects now. The first thing is like finding something that actually aligns with your interests. 
So even before working on blockchain and all of the products I worked on were kind of highly technical products. And that's always something I've, I've enjoyed to do. And this is why kind of the protocol layer is what I thought was appealing on Ethereum, even though there were plenty of opportunities at the application layer, uh, that was just a fit for me. And that's kind of where I ended up spending my time. So I think today the space is just so broad that you can definitely find something that you know hooks your attention. From there, I think it's just getting involved in the community, right? Like every single project has uh, online community somewhere that you can get involved in. Every project usually has too many things to do and not enough people to do them. Uh, so trying to find some low-hanging fruits where, where you can help and also trying to identify, you know, like the gaps in your skill set. So for example, one thing, even though it's it's not a major part of my my job now, uh, is I wanted to learn, you know, to write solidity and to be able to deploy smart contracts and whatnot. And I'm by no means kind of a, a proficient smart contract engineer, but I'm able to, you know, write solidity code, understand how it works, and 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 that's like a skill I had to acquire when I what when I started working on, on Ethereum. You don't know that in advance like before you start actually in involving yourself in the community and, and tinkering and seeing, you know, what are the skills I'm missing. And luckily, I think for pretty much any scale you want to learn on blockchain, there are free tutorials and there's, you know, resources that are that are pretty easily accessible. I'll give a, a quick shout out to Crypto Zombies if people are out there. That's what I did, yes. That's how I wrote my first smart contracts as well. So not the only one. So Crypto Zombies out there uh, for people who aspiring developers, I would suggest is a good place to go check out. Uh, in order to learn a little bit more about smart contract code. And I have a quick question too, for listeners listening who maybe aren't technical, they're not coders, they're not engineers. Is there any opportunity for non-technical people to get involved in the community? Maybe somebody that comes from a marketing background or has a sales skill set. Are, are there opportunities for them to get involved? So I think for sure, like there's, as I said, you know, there's more and more projects and the higher up the stack the projects are, like application being built on Ethereum are not traditional tech applications, but they are applications that need to reach users, that need to explain their value proposition, and you know that need marketing, that need UX design, that need business development because they need to sign deals with partners and whatnot. So I think all the traditional kind of skill sets from tech are, are, are definitely very needed. I do find that you know even though you don't need to be like an engineer or whatnot, uh, a lot of these products are kind of technical in nature and technical doesn't always mean code, right? Like you look at DeFi and these projects are very technically complex from like a finance perspective. So I think as someone who's doing, whether it's UX or business development or marketing for those, having at least a high level understanding of, you know, how the how the project works uh, is, is really valuable um, and not being put off by the fact that, you know, there are some technical components. But but for sure there is yeah there is demand for those for those skill sets. We've talked about this on the podcast in the past, but I think one of the biggest challenges to uh, having mass adoption of this technology is challenges with UX and a lack of education. And I think that's where you know the marketers come in and maybe the non technical people come in to translate all of this into English. And I'm wondering since you know obviously you mentioned there's so many projects and there's so much to learn about Ethereum that's constantly developing, but at a very high level and you know to somebody who's maybe new to the space, how would you explain what Ethereum is, especially to somebody who maybe still just sees Ethereum as the same as Bitcoin, as the same as, you know, Dogecoin, just as a as a cryptocurrency. Sure. So the biggest difference between Ethereum and, and Bitcoin uh, is that Bitcoin allows you to send and receive transactions, uh, which which are transfers of, of cryptocurrency. So Bitcoin on the Bitcoin network and Dogecoin is, is Doge on the Dogecoin network. Ethereum 
is kind of the same infrastructure, but instead of only sending and receiving uh, tokens, every transaction can represent arbitrary computation. That means you can create the NFT. That means you can vote in a DAO. And it gives much more flexibility for people who want to build applications uh, to basically build whatever they want that's running on Ethereum. And what's nice is these applications running on Ethereum have kind of native money built into it because you have the Ether token on Ethereum. And to me, this the, the thing that made this the most concrete was actually programming Solidity. Um, so when you program Solidity, you know, like Ether is just a primitive type that you can use as part of your program. Whereas if you program any other type of application that needs to deal with money, then you need, you know, you need to integrate Stripe or PayPal or some other way to, to deal with money. And it's not as easily something you can just manipulate within your program. I think this is the biggest difference, you know, between Ethereum and, and, and Bitcoin or Dogecoin. And also proof of stake coming up, right? <laughs> so we're on our we're on our way to proof of stake this year, which I think is the, the two big innovations of Ethereum have been generalized code and smart contracts. And then the other big one is is proof of stake. So I'd actually love to get your take on that. <laughs> what are your thoughts on proof of stake coming to Ethereum? And why are, why are you excited about it? Just at a high level, the difference between proof of work and proof of stake. So proof of work, uh, you secure your blockchain by having computers who run computations. And because you run so many of them, you would need more computers that run more computation from an enemy to kind of reverse the transactions that are happening or uh, censor the transactions that are happening. On proof of stake, instead what you do is you don't have people run all these computers to, to, to prove which chain is valid. You have them put up a bunch of money and say, you know, almost I'm betting that this is the valid chain. And if I'm wrong, you can take my money. This is obviously much better because you don't need to run all of these computers. Uh, so it's better, you know, for the environment. Uh, it's it, it makes kind of all the system, you know, live uh, on, on the internet. One of the big challenges with proof of stake is that it's very hard to get a lot of different people to participate in it. Um, what's nice with proof of work is anybody who has a computer can kind of turn it on and participate. And it's not actually hard to add more participants to the network. Whereas in proof of stake, because everything kind of happens on the blockchain, there's a, a real limit to like, how can you efficiently get, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands or millions of participants uh, to participate just because of the overhead of calculating and going through all of their votes and, and, and dealing with, with, with issues if they happen. And this is where I think Ethereum kind of stands out from other, from other uh, even proof of stake blockchains where Ethereum you know, has been talking about going to proof of stake since 2015. And if, if you look at other blockchains today, other blockchains already have proof of stake. So the question is like, well, why, why can't Ethereum just do it, right? And, and the big reason is that Ethereum really wanted to ensure that we could get a very high number of people participating in the consensus, even though we moved to proof of stake. And this is very different from most, most other proof of stake consensus algorithms. So just to give you an idea in terms of numbers, I think right now there's about 100,000 validators on the Ethereum proof of stake network. And last time I checked, I think the second biggest proof of stake network has like less than 1,000. So we have about 1,000 times more validators, which makes the system, you know, much more decentralized than the second kind of highest one. That's really, I guess, where all the, you know, research and energy went into both from a, you know, cryptographic research all the way to like just the engineering to make it work. Yes. Well, I was a big fan of proof of stake early on for Ethereum, mostly because 
uh, it just made a lot of intuitive sense to me that you would want to have a proving mechanism that was so much more environmentally friendly. And, and like that was a big selling point for me early on because I always thought that blockchains were going to be global scale. And then, you, you know, you see how much power that some of these blockchains consume. They consume the amount of power of a small country. And when you move to proof of stake, all of a sudden, uh, the amount of energy use is one one thousandth, right? <laughs> what you would need to do for a proof of work chain, which has been big. Yeah, no. So I 100% agree with that. I do think proof of work has some benefits. Um, and I'm actually quite happy that Ethereum will have gone through both, right? Like we're going to have had like five, six years of proof of work before proof of stake. And one of the things that's nice with proof of work is because the miners' costs are not de denominated in, in cryptocurrency, right? They're denominated in dollars or whatever their local currency is. They tend to have to sell their earnings to cover those costs. So if you're running like a mining factory, you know, in Canada, I need to pay my bills in Canadian dollars. So even though I get ether as a mining reward, I didn't need to sell it to, to pay my bills. Um, and that that creates kind of a natural distribution of the coins. So obviously, you know, the miners end up with like a, a smaller percentage of, of the total coins. And, and over time, that, that kind of broadens how many people are, are, are part of, of the network. And I think proof of stake has a bit less of that property because obviously the stakers are free to sell their stake, but they don't have kind of, you know, high fixed costs that force them to do so. I think it's really nice that Ethereum got to a spot where we did have like these five years of proof of work and, and we got to kind of distribute the supply of Ether a bit more broadly. Um, before just moving to proof of stake. And luckily, I mean, we had those proof of work years before. It was kind of a global scale thing. So the, the environmental impact is you know, somewhat limited compared to what it would be in five years. Um, but I do think, yeah, there are some nice properties of proof of work and it's it's really valuable for Ethereum to have gone through through both stages. You mentioned something there, which is you know measuring the security of, in the decentralization amount that you have on a proof of stake uh, network. And I was actually just kind of curious, how does the Ethereum Foundation, you know, measure this level of decentralization or think about it? Do you guys talk about that internally, and and how do you guys kind of approach that problem? Like you were saying earlier, there's a million people on ETH and maybe only a thousand on some of these other ones. I wasn't super involved in the proof of stake design, uh, so you know, I I didn't contribute too much to the, how it got done. But I think one thing that's been really important as part of the design is um, being okay with validators not having perfect uptime. The numbers might be slightly off here, but as I understand it, you should be profitable validating on Ethereum if you're up more than, I believe it was 70% of the time, which is a very kind of lax requirement. Um, and that means that, you know, you can actually run a validator from your home computer and assuming you have a decent internet connection, you know, you should be able to maintain 70% uptime and, and, and far above that. Um, whereas a lot of these, uh, I guess, more centralized system, they'll expect their validators to have something say, you know, like, 99% or 99.9% .9 uptime. And if you're not profitable, unless you're basically online all the time, then what you're asking people to do is to become like DevOps engineers, right? And to set up, you know, high availability machines and whatnot. And, and this is something that just will exclude a lot of people from staking just because of the high technical barrier to entry. So I think keeping kind of the, the uptime required fairly low has been a very valuable design choice. And another very good uh, design choice is that the penalties you get in Ethereum are proportional to how many people do the same wrong thing as you at the same time. So that means that if you just go online yourself and you know you miss a vote because you were offline, your penalty is much lower than if everybody's on AWS and AWS goes down and then they all miss a vote. Then everybody will get penalized higher. So that also kind of 
incentivizes you to you know set up your own machine rather than just hosting it on the cloud because you know you're kind of decorrelated from from others. Um, so I think you know th those are just two examples, but throughout the process, there's been a lot of thought about what are things that we can do that'll make it more accessible for for a lot of people to join. Awesome. Well, Tim, I want to talk to you a little bit more about the Ethereum Foundation. So you started at the beginning of the year. You're now the chair of the All Core Devs at the Ethereum Foundation. For listeners who aren't familiar with what the Ethereum Foundation is, can you talk a little bit about that? It's it's a nonprofit, but it's not really a nonprofit in the traditional sense because it's bigger. It's part of this bigger Ethereum ecosystem. So there's a lot going on here. So talk a little bit more about what the Ethereum Foundation is and then what is All Core Devs? Sure. So, I mean, the Ethereum Foundation is a nonprofit that is kind of invested in, in the growth and success of the Ethereum ecosystem. We do a lot of things from, I think, more and more community coordination as the community grows, uh, just <laughs> kind of yeah, herding cats, to a lot of R&D on Ethereum um, and engineering work on Ethereum. And then, you know, some outreach, but I, I think that's a very minor part of, of uh, what we do. As uh, Ethereum grows, the foundation is really looking for ways to support external projects in Ethereum and, you know, whether that's giving them bootstrapping grants so that they can actually start until they're profitable or initiatives like uh, matching the donation rounds in Gitcoin where the community can kind of decide where funds go. Um, yeah, I, I think the foundation, as it grows, kind of realizes, you know, it clearly cannot do everything for Ethereum. And it's more about how do we support teams that are building on Ethereum and so one aspect of that is Alcor Devs. So Alcor Devs is kind of this long running developer call that I think started in 2015 where the different client implementations on Ethereum uh, kind of talk to, together and, and, and discuss issues. And one thing that's, I guess, worth noting about Ethereum that's kind of different from Bitcoin is Bitcoin only has one kind of official software that you run if you want to run a Bitcoin node and everybody downloads the same one. Ethereum actually has four both on Ethereum 1 and on Ethereum 2, so eight total kind of, we call them clients that you can run, and they all run the Ethereum protocol. And this gives us kind of an additional layer of, of decentralization, where if there's a bug with one of the implementations, then we have, you know, backup ones that we can use. And Alcor Devs is the meeting where we uh, do the coordination across all those implementations on the Ethereum 1 side. Uh, so there's a similar meeting on the Ethereum 2 side, and, and now we even have a third one where we get both sides to talk together as the merge is approaching. Um, but that's the gist of it. Got it. Real quick side note, you mentioned herding cats earlier. Are the Ethereum cat herders part of the Ethereum Foundation? No. So Ethereum cat herders, uh, that's a really good question, is a group that came together, I think, two, three years ago to do just better project management on Ethereum. It's a lot of people who help with different initiatives at the protocol level. The I think, you know, uh, easiest entry there is they take all the notes for all of these community calls and provide full transcripts. So this is and this is a really good opportunity for people who want to join the ecosystem to kind of get paid small bounties to you know sit there for two hours and learn and, and kind of write a transcript for for some of these calls. Um, and they do other stuff like, for example, hosting uh, Q and A's with some of the the people working on changes to Ethereum, uh, doing kind of community sentiment gathering and whatnot. So they're kind of this independent group that's yeah helping with project management. Okay, got it. I, I just wanted to know because we had Pooja Ranjan on the last yes. episode uh, from great. the Ethereum. 
Yeah, yeah, she was great. Yeah. Okay, so you mentioned all core devs. This is obviously for developers and people who are really deep into the space. Is there any opportunity for quote unquote normal people out there to get involved either with Ethereum Foundation or with the larger Ethereum community? And if so, how how can they get involved? So with all core devs specifically or just with Ethereum? I guess not really with all core devs, because okay. that's probably more just yeah. for developers. And yeah, so with Ethereum Foundation more broadly, or even within the bigger Ethereum community. Sure. So I guess, you know, the first place I would start is actually the Ethereum.org website. It's quite good. And it gives you a really good overview of the different parts of the community. You know, from there, you can quickly navigate to what, what parts you're, you're interested in. I think, you know, the main way that People get involved with the Ethereum Foundation is usually via grants because they have a project that they want to work on and they need some funding. I think it's called Ethereum Ecosystem Support Program, ESP. They have a Twitter account, which I think is ESP underscore Ethereum, something like that. And they have a public forum. If you want to you know, submit a grant, you have a project you'd like to build on Ethereum, they can definitely help you there. Also, just to put a, a quick note on Alcor Devs, even though these are kind of developer calls, they're all public and they're all, you know, both live streamed and, and uh, have transcripts for it. And they aren't just attended by the client developers. So they are also attended by the people who want to propose changes to the protocol. Uh, so obviously, you know, the, the technical bar to do that is, is non-trivial. Uh, but if you do have like a change you want to bring to Ethereum, you don't need to be part of the Ethereum Foundation or to know people at the Ethereum Foundation. Uh, we have a GitHub page, which kind of explains, you know, what the process is to get your, your idea considered and, and, and have feedback on it. But you definitely don't need to be part of the Ethereum Foundation or, or know people at the Ethereum Foundation for, for that to happen. And then last thing before we dive into the EIPs, I promise we'll get there, is what are some exciting things happening in the, in the Ethereum community in the next year? And then, you know, really looking forward, where do you see Ethereum being in 10 years? Wow. Big question. So, I mean, you know, in terms of exciting things, I think we've seen over the past year that'll keep going forward. It's really DeFi and NFTs. So DeFi stands for decentralized finance. Um, and this is basically recreating the equivalent of a whole financial system on Ethereum. We started out with, uh, you know, having decentralized exchanges where you can swap one token for another directly on Ethereum without having an account at Coinbase or Binance or stuff like that. Then there, there were other early projects like uh, like MakerDAO, which allowed you to convert your Ether to a stable coin directly on chain uh, if you wanted to, uh, to kind of uh, have less volatility. Uh, and now there's just this massive ecosystem of every financial product you can think of, insurance, derivative, uh, you know, personalized trading strategies, setting up your own strategy and getting people to invest in that, uh, which is kind of all bundled under DeFi. And, and that's just been growing at an exponential pace and, and shows no signs of slowing. Uh, so that's one big area on Ethereum. And then the other big one that everybody's talking about is NFTs, which stands for non-fungible tokens. And this is basically the idea that you can issue an asset on Ethereum that represents something unique off-chain that's shown to have been like really, really popular amongst artists where they can issue kind of, you know, first editions or limited edition uh, versions of their art on Ethereum and get paid for that. We're only kind of scratching the, the surface there. But one thing that's really exciting is that it allows artists to sell things directly to their fans and also to like their most eager fans, where a lot of the kind of business models around the art 
right now have to do with like, what will your average fan pay, right? Like how much will the average person pay for like, you know, a Spotify subscription or, or a book or something like that. Whereas with an NFT, if you actually only sell kind of, you know, one copy and then everybody else can obviously consume the artwork for, for free, then you're, it's more about what is the person, what is your like most engaged fan willing to pay? And, and for a lot of artists that can really kind of change how they, they approach their, I guess, their business as an artist. Uh, so those are those are two really big ones right now. Over time, like in the next five to 10 years, some projects I'm really excited about are things that start to go beyond just mimicking kind of finance on Ethereum, um, but creating really like new infrastructure that can be used to set up kind of a almost an entire alternative like internet or kind of internet nation. You know, there's like the basic infrastructure. So uh, you have unstoppable domains, but Ethereum has uh, ENS, which is like a names, domain name registrar on chain, which allows you to, you know, abstract all these complicated crypto addresses and just send send funds directly to an address. And that all lives on Ethereum. Um, we've seen more and more projects experimenting with just uh, how do we fund public goods in the community? Uh, so Gitcoin, I mentioned earlier, is running experiments uh, with uh, something called quadratic funding, where if you have, you know, an organization like the Ethereum Foundation who wants to donate money, but is unsure which projects, there's like innovative techniques around, you can use both the number of people and how much they donate to figure out, you know, which projects should you give how much money to. And it's kind of, yeah, I think seeing these these experiments with bringing both parts of like traditional internet infrastructure and kind of new advances in economics or game theory and, and trying those on the network. Um, yeah, that's what I'm really excited about. It's it's very hard to predict what will come out of it. Just like, you know, five years ago, we couldn't really predict DeFi. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see what happens. I always ask this question. I'm like, it's an impossible question to answer because things are moving so fast from literally like day to day that how can you predict what's going to happen in five to 10 years? But I just think it'll be interesting and maybe it'll be fun one day to look back on this podcast episode and hear the predictions and see how close or how far off we were. I want to move into talking about EIPs because I know that's what you spend most of your time working on. So for listeners who are maybe new to the space, maybe start by explaining what an EIP is. Or maybe why, like, right? Like why we have the EIP process. And it's all about improving Ethereum, right? Yeah. So EIP literally stands for Ethereum Improvement Proposal. It's actually copied from BIP, which stands for Bitcoin Improvement Proposal, which is copied from PIP, which stands for Python Improvement Proposals. Um, so it's, you know, a pretty, I guess you would say at this point, common standard. And the goal is like, how do you propose changes to a protocol that's used by a lot of different people, right? And this is the same whether you think about Ethereum or the Python programming language, you know, you have a great idea. What's like the formal method to propose that idea to the community and potentially get it adopted by the entire platform? And that's really what EIPs are about. There's a bunch of subcategories of EIPs, which kind of depend on which part of Ethereum you're changing. So, for example, uh, if you have an EIP that's really focused on kind of applications, it'll be treated differently than an EIP that's focused on the consensus layer. But I guess at a, at a very high level, there's really kind of two big categories. The first is what's called a core EIP. And a core EIP changes basically the rules of the blockchain. Uh, so that means that for this EIP, all of the nodes on the network have to agree to the new rules at the same time exactly. Otherwise, we have a split in the network. And then 
every other EIP, what's nice is they're kind of optional, right? So you don't have to force them and nobody is, is obligated to use them. So an example of this is, for example, ERC-20 is an EIP. And ERC-20 is this token standard that we use on Ethereum uh, to issue a, no, a new token. So it just gives you the basic framework. If you want to launch a token on Ethereum, you know these are the basic functions that it needs. It needs a way to transfer it. It needs a way to create it and whatnot. Um, and nobody forces you to use it. But if you do use this standard, then it makes it much easier for exchanges, for example, to integrate your token because they know exactly how it'll work, right? They just need to basically add the name for your token. And you know, I'm sure they do a bunch more than that, but they don't have to redesign kind of a whole custom integration. They can just know, look, this is how we do it. Um, another example of an EIP that you know is, is nice, but not everybody has to use is something like FastSync. So FastSync is how you know, nodes sync up. If you're a new node on the network and you want to get uh, all the way to the latest block, um, you can either sync every single block since the history of, of, of the network, but that's quite long. So we have this alternate protocol called FastSync and, you know, nobody's obligated to use it or to implement it, but the more people use it, you know, it gives them the benefit that instead of taking, you know, six weeks to sync their node, it takes them something like two days, right? Um, but again, it's it's up to them. I spend most of my time on these core EIPs. Um, and so these are the ones where we basically bundle them together, have network upgrades or, or hard forks. And we really have to make sure that everybody's implemented them the exact same way, uh, that every you know potential error is handled the exact same way before it gets deployed to the network. And this is why, you know, sometimes you hear there's like a network upgrade coming at this block. Uh, we have one coming up, I think on April 14th on Ethereum called Berlin. So that means that, you know, we have these new features that we're adding. And as of this block on April 14th, all of the clients and all the nodes on the network will support them. And if, you know, they don't activate it, then they just get removed from the network. Yeah, so that's it at a high level. We have, it's like this formal process where you can describe change to the network. There's a bunch of different categories and the two kind of high level categories that matter is whether or not it affects the consensus and everybody needs to do it at the same time or, or not. And then people can just do it whatever they want if they benefit from it. And so am I correct in thinking that anybody that has something to propose can submit an EIP? And then once that goes through, then who who reviews it? Is that what all core devs does? They're in charge of reviewing and like, quote unquote, judging it, I guess, to decide if it passes or not. Yeah, that's a good question. So, again, this really depends on if it's core or non-core. But yes, anybody can submit an EIP. Basically, there's a GitHub repository with instructions. Uh, there's like a template. You just make a copy of the template fill in the blanks with your, with your idea, and then open a pull request against the GitHub repository. And as long as, you know, as long as you fill out the template and it's, it's roughly like coherent, like it will get merged, there's no kind of editorial control at that, at that point, then you do have an EIP, you know, once you, you have it, it'll, the pull request number becomes the number. So you'll have like EIP one, two, three, four or something. This is again, where it depends if it's a core EIP or not a core EIP. If it's not a core EIP, you basically need to find the people in the community who are affected by it and get their feedback on it, right? Like, so for example, if it's a token standard, you'll want to talk with applications and potentially exchanges and wallets. Um, and, you know, and then there's different stages. So the first stage is draft, which is like, you're just working on it. Then review is you're asking people in the community to come to come have a look. And there's a forum where, you know, they all kind of get posted and, and some people 
you know, like major projects, say MetaMask or Infura, kind of keep an, an eye on that that forum. And then once you feel you've had you've had like enough feedback on your idea and, and you think it's 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 pretty ready, there's a final stage called last call. Um, and this actually sends a RSS notification to people who subscribe. So you might get like a final set of review. And then your EAP is basically done. If you're coming for something that's at the core protocol, um, it's a bit different. And the, the reason why it's different is because you know, you're kind of going to force this change on everybody. Um, so core devs will review it. Typically, the way it goes is, you know, somebody has an idea. Uh, they'll typically have like a prototype or, you know, some indication that there's like really high demand for this. Um, and then they'll bring it to the core developers. And the first thing the core developers do is look at it through the lens of network security. And I would say 80 to 90% of EIPs that come up have like some kind of, not flaw, but like, potential issue in them that it could affect network security. And the, the average EIP conversation goes like, hey, I have a good idea. Yes, but have you thought about this, this attack vector? And then no. And then the people go work on it, you know, for a year or two because it's actually hard to come up with something that doesn't doesn't suffer these 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 weaknesses. Like assuming you have something that's safe and, and that's like technically sound, it's kind of two paths, right? One is like, is it controversial or or not? For something that's not controversial, then generally it'll just be included in the next hard fork. You know, if we see that there's demand for it, it's safe, it's been implemented, it's been tested. Um, you know, there's no major objections, then we'll include it. I think the things that are controversial are always the hard ones, and there, core developers have to make the decision. You know, is this something that we feel there's enough demand in the community to include, or not? Right. And every time you include something controversial, core developers can't really choose if people will upgrade their nodes, right? Like we can't force you know, all of the projects to, to upgrade their nodes. And even less so today with all of DeFi, you know, DeFi has to choose which applications they want their chains to run on, where do they want their oracles to point towards and whatnot. So core developers need to feel like, you know, if something is controversial, it needs to, to have at least enough potential value to pull in that it's worth kind of moving that headache over to the community to figure out. There's no kind of hard rule there about where that line is. Speaking of controversy, there's one EIP that uh, I know a lot of people are interested in that stirred a little bit of controversy recently, and that's actually um, EIP 1559, which has to do with transaction fees and and also, I guess, how mining rewards are, are done in some cases. So I know that you've been supporting this, and this one's been around for like two years, so it's not like a new thing, like you're saying, but it's making its way through. So uh, if you don't mind, how about you tell us about this one? Because this was gets talked about the Ethereum community, and it has to do with how you know how users will interact with the chain. And I'm sure people would love to hear how this is going to impact them this next year. To give some background, 1559 got started two years, probably three years ago now. There was a first development team that worked on it. They came to Alcor Devs. Alcor Devs had good idea, but there's a ton of security issues here. Uh, so then they started, you know, working on those. Um, at some point, consensus took over. So I was part of the team that that took over 1559, and we basically spent a year of development work trying to address the various security issues that, uh, you know, all core devs had pointed out, uh, successfully addressing them. Maybe it's worth kind of giving an overview of what the, the the EIP does. At a high level, it's about how do you pay for transactions to be included on Ethereum. Right now, we have what's called the first price auction, where everybody submits a bid with their transaction, which is your gas price, and the highest bids get included on Ethereum. And this is really a bad system because 
ideally what you'd want is you want to you don't want to pay the highest price you want to pay just over the second highest price right and if you think about how say like facebook and google run their auctions when they, they auction ads, this is what they'll do. So if everybody bids for ad space and like I bid $10, you bid $5 and somebody else bid $3, I win, but Facebook will charge me $5 or $5.01 because all of the excess between like the first highest bid and the second highest bid is, is like money that you know I, I kind of shouldn't have paid. I just like overpaid for that. Ideally, Ethereum could use a system like that, but the problem with these systems is they require a trusted third party to look at all the bids and actually sort them and say, this is the highest, this is the second highest. Um, and because blockchains are kind of built around the idea that you don't want to rely on a trusted third party, we can't have like this simple fix to our first price system on Ethereum. So what we do instead on with 1559 is instead of having all of these bids come in with transactions, we just say in the protocol, this is the minimum price you should pay for a transaction. And if you don't want to pay that price, fine, you know, just don't submit your transaction. And if you pay that price, you know, we can guarantee you that like your transaction will be valid in this block. And so you go from kind of implicitly estimating how much you should pay to just have it yet being written right there in the protocol. Um, and I guess to put some numbers on it, like a few weeks ago, I was still looking at Etherscan at random blocks. Sometimes you'll see like a, four to you know six seven times different in a single block of how many people paid like somebody might have paid 30 guay and somebody might have paid like 300 guay and they're included in the same block uh, on the network and you know that kind of makes no sense it's almost like you're going to the gas station and like the different pumps have different prices uh, but you're all kind of getting your gas at the same time uh, like a transaction that's included you know like the 80th versus the 70th in a block shouldn't pay like a, a wildly different price. And this is really what 1559 aims to fix. In order to be able to have this minimum price in the protocol, we need to be able to gauge what's the supply and demand for block space, right? Like, because this is our minimum price will be, you know, the amount of transactions we want on the protocol and what's like the maximum we can get people to pay for that. The challenge with doing that is right now on Ethereum, all of the blocks are always full. So because the blocks are always full, you know, our demand is always like 100%. And it's hard to, to do good estimates if your, your demand is always the same. So with 1559, we're going to allow blocks to be all the way up to 200% full uh, compared to the current gas limit. And when blocks will be more than 100% full, we'll just start raising the minimum price. And if they're less than 100% full, we'll start lowering it. So this is the way by which we can kind of gauge how much demand there is to, to actually use Ethereum. And as there's more demand, uh, we'll just raise the price. And as there's less, we'll lower the price. One other thing that's nice about that is because blocks can always be up to 200% full, it means if they're not, so if they're kind of on an average at 100%, if you're sending a transaction, there's always kind of an extra 100% capacity in the next block to include you. So for most users, most of the times, and there's you know there's some exceptions to it here, uh, but for most users, most of the time, it'll be much more easy to know this is how much I need to pay to be included in like the next two blocks. Um, next block can sometimes be tricky because of propagation and whatnot, but like if you want to be included in like under a minute, um, it'll be really easy to calculate this is how much you need to pay. And this is like a huge UX improvement. Like I'm sure you've both lived this where like you send a transaction, you know, uh, through MetaMask and then Etherscan tells you one minute 
And then you refresh and it's like two and a half minutes. And then you refresh and it's like five minutes. And then you're like speeding it up and like overpaying. So the goal is to kind of eliminate all of that, you know, kind of annoyance in, in dealing with that. The part, I guess, this is where the miners come in. If we want to like uh, properly estimate the demand for, for transaction fees, or sorry, transactions on Ethereum, um, we can't send the transaction fee to miners because miners would then have an incentive to fill the blocks up with their own transactions, raise the minimum price for everybody else, and then they get the transaction fees back from their transactions. So it's kind of costless to them. So the solution to that problem is to burn uh, part of the transaction fee. And this is where kind of things get controversial around, you know, miners, uh, especially recently, have been receiving these transaction fees. And, and some of them are upset that they won't be receiving them anymore. Um, and we, we can kind of dive into details you know, about that. Uh, but on a high level, that's how 1559 works. Well, I would say like anyone is going to be a little upset if they're making less money. But I do think that miners are making more money, maybe 10 times more money this year than they did last year, just given the price of Ethereum is so much higher. There's a lot of caveats there. <laughs> yeah, well, I fully understand where they're coming from. I think it's definitely worth having discussion around. Everyone's going to be a little upset if they get less money. Would it be fair to say that 1559 is one of the larger economic changes to the uh, Ethereum system in the last couple of years? So I'm probably biased because I work on it, but I think after kind of the beacon chain, it's probably the second largest change period we've done. Obviously, it changes the economics, but it also changes, you know, what's a transaction, what's a block, how do we deal with uh, the transaction pool, how do we, basically how kind of every part of the stack operates. So I'd say, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very big change. Well, thanks for taking the time to walk us through there uh, on the EIPs. Before we move on, I actually just want to ask, are there any other maybe smaller EIPs that you're personally excited about or that you would like for people to check out because you think it shows how the blockchain can keep improving? Yeah. So, I mean, there's one that's been getting a lot of attention right now. I think it's 3074, uh, which basically is a new a new uh, approach to do sponsored transactions. So to get the application to pay the gas for the user and to do things like remove the need to have two transactions uh, when you want to use an ERC-20 in an app. So to remove the need to have like both an approve and a send. Um, so it's an EIP that would kind of greatly simplify or add a lot of flexibility to how applications can actually interact with their users and kind of take on the complexity for them, which is super valuable as we're onboarding new people to the space. It's being actively discussed right now. So yeah, if you if you search for it, 3074 is, is definitely very interesting. Well, we'll we'll check it out. Yeah. Ensemble Domains actually processes transactions on behalf of users. And that's because our NFT token has a send for buy function where the user can sign something and then we can pay for the transaction for them on, on the back end. Yeah. And a lot of applications have done what Unstoppable has done, which is build that into their smart contracts. But it would be great to have that on a protocol level because as an application, I can say we use it thousands of times per week, <laughs> right? So like it's super useful yeah. to have something like that into the protocol. Yeah, check it out. We'll do, we'll do, thanks. I think we're getting to the end here. Uh, Diane, I'm going to pass it over to you for our last section here. So we always end every podcast episode with a segment that we call Explain Your Tweet. And this is where I go through your Twitter account, Tim, and dig up some tweets that are maybe cryptic or interesting or funny and give you a chance to explain it. So in the interest of time, I'm just going to pull out one tweet today. Most of your tweets, I will say, are about EIP 1559 or other EIPs or all core devs meetings. So um, listeners, if you're interested in this stuff, definitely follow it. Tim, I think you summarize every call, all core devs call, or you, know, you, you post some sort of like 
brief summary about it so users can, you know, if they miss a meeting or something, they can kind of get caught up on your Twitter account. One tweet that I did want to pull out is this is from March 19th. You retweeted somebody that said, wow, it is awesome that we are all obsessed with crypto and don't hate our jobs, even though we work crazy hours. I think it is also very important that we don't idolize people who do this. And you said huge plus one to this. If we want crypto to grow, we need to make it appealing to talented folks who just want to do good work, get paid, have a life and not become degens. I think this is a hot button topic right now because of this, you know, peak that we're at with crypto. And it's like people say crypto never sleeps. And like you said, too, like people in the crypto space are obsessed with it. And it it doesn't feel like I think I saw somebody else tweet recently, like, there are two groups of people that work 100 hours a week. The first group is junior investment bankers, and they know it. And the second group is crypto folks, and they don't know it. <laughs> so I mean, yeah, we truly do enjoy it. But like, what do you have to say uh, about that? And maybe to people who are in the space or people who are thinking about getting into it? Yeah, like, I think, you know, it's extremely important that we make the space appealing to people who don't want to work 100 hours a week. Um, and I think the people we end up seeing on Twitter or on podcasts or whatnot are kind of the tip of the iceberg. But like the amount of developers who actually work on, you know, client teams and applications and whatnot is much larger than the amount of them who also tweet and, you know, work 100 hours a week. Um, and frankly, without all the people kind of doing the work, there are no applications, there is no, you know, clients and whatnot. And as we scale, you know, we need to get more and more people to contribute to these projects and we need it we need it to be okay for them to just be a job right yeah so it's something i'm i'm really in favor and i think some of the most talented people i've worked with personally in this space have also been people who just you know don't want to spend their day on twitter or like 100 hours a week reading about all the new defi projects but you know want to be very great engineers do their job and and that's it and i think you know, not to say that there's anything wrong with people who want to do more. Um, like we see a ton of those and, and, and it's really valuable, but we, we, we absolutely need to make the space for both. As crypto becomes more mainstream, we're going to have more mainstream people working on crypto too. And people don't need to wear themselves out in DGEN or YOLO on everything in the crypto space in order to be part of the crypto economy. Uh, so I appreciate that as someone myself uh, who's like, you know, I love crypto, but I also I also have a life <laughs> and, and finding balance is a great way in order to really be able to make impact. So Tim, it's been great having you on here. Thanks for uh, going over all of these, some of these, you know, inside baseball things with Ethereum. Thanks for talking about EIPs, letting people know um, where they can go check those out and contribute. And it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Well, and last thing, Tim, before you go, let people know where they can find you if they want to connect with you personally. And then also you mentioned earlier, ethereum.org is the website for the Ethereum Foundation. For people listening who are brand new to the space, what are the initial cool things that they can do on ethereum.org to get involved in the community if they're brand new? Yeah, I guess one clarification, ethereum.org is the website for all of Ethereum. It's not the Ethereum Foundation the website's actually quite good. Like if you're a developer, if you're not a developer, if you're like a business, it kind of guides you into different ways. So I'd say just go to ethereum.org, find something that appeals to you. And, and, and the website is basically made as a series of links to community resources. So it'll definitely get you to something you'll find interesting. Where can people find me? Uh, Twitter is the best place. I'm at Tim Beiko, T-I-M-B-E-I-K-O. Uh, you can just tweet to me and I'll respond. 
Awesome. We'll include all that in the show notes as well to make it easy for people to click through. Thanks again, Tim, so much. Really appreciate you taking the time to explain all of this to us today. Uh, Thank you listeners for tuning in and we'll be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. You can continue this conversation with us on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. We look forward to chatting with you and thanks again for listening.